Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Thanks. Saturday And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. And I'm so glad that I've got a studio full of very uh, smart, entertaining, engaging men. Guide Talk is underway. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Dr. Jim Bilby, and George Fraser, who's got, I think, one question to ask. So this is going to be a great hour. If you have questions you'd like us to uh, grapple with, let us know what they are. Text only, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-93-FAITH. That is what's planned for today. My second hour coming up, Jeff Redorn's going to be in studio. We're going to talk about uh, end times with him. It's going to be a great show. So that's what's uh, scheduled. Take 60 seconds, and we'll get Guy Talk going. I'm Neil Stave, a manager of Faith Radio. This month, the focus is on Thanksgiving, and we're reminded to take a day to pause and give thanks for all the blessings God pours out on us. But I'm thinking of a growing group of people who deserve our gratitude every day. Because these Friends of Faith Radio support us as ongoing monthly givers. This steady giving allows this ministry to have a firm financial foundation month after month. So to all of you who make up our ongoing monthly giving family, thanks. We appreciate you and bless you for the encouragement you bring to us and to thousands of listeners who, as a result of your gifts, are able to hear the hope of the gospel presented daily here on Faith Radio. Every day is Thanksgiving Day because of your partnership. Now, if you've given to Faith Radio in the past but want to be more consistent in that support, consider becoming an ongoing monthly giver. You can sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com or by calling 877-933-2484 and press 2 to make a gift. Back to the show. Guy talks underway. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Dr. Jim Bilby, and uh, Dr. George Fraser. Um, thanks for being with us today. We, we've been our, we've been talking 100 miles an hour prior to the start of the show, and I, frankly, I've been a little overwhelmed because we've gotten into deep waters quickly, and I don't even know how we start to reconstruct what we were talking about. It's uh, it's good, heavy stuff, but I don't think we can. <laughs> I'm still definitely beneath the surface. I can't. I can't even see the surface, much less yeah. break it at this point. Yeah, I can't either. But uh, George, uh, you did have a question you wanted to uh, throw out. Um, God, the new one. Something. Why am I here? You know. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, but something that came up in Bible study even today, wasn't it? Yeah, and I got to tell you, I love listening to you guys talk because I have a real hunger built to learn more about God, and I always do when these guys are here. Me too. Uh, so that's a real blessing. I was in a Bible study today. We meet every Thursday, and one of the questions that came up was about homosexuality and how a lot of Christians now don't believe that that's really a sin, that the Bible's wrong. And, of course, I said, I believe the Bible to be inerrant. I don't understand it all. And then the question, what about the part about having your daughters be sold as slaves? And I wasn't familiar with that. And so my question is, if you are, can you shed some light for me? Because this guy's a new Christian. He's a great guy. And I don't want to discourage him. I want to encourage him. But it's over my head on this. 
So just so I'm clear on the, is that on the Genesis question seven. Too, yeah, Gen- this, you're talking about the, the description. I, I don't even know where it is. I know it's in the Old Testament of daughters being sold as slaves. So is yes. that the que- is the homosexuality part of the question or the sold well, as slaves? Well, what he was trying to do is say that the Bible's wrong in areas like that would oh. you would never do that and. That, that was his point. Yeah, I mean, Jim, I'd be curious your thoughts on this too. But I, I, you know, I don't think it's a cop out answer to say that the Bible describes uh, much of what is happening in Old Testament, New Testament life, but it doesn't endorse or it's not prescribing this as a way of life. So, um, to, to sell your daughters into slavery doesn't mean that that is something God is endorsing any more than Solomon having nine hundred wives is something that God is endorsing. It's descriptive of what's happening there, but it's often. Uh, very much a disordered part of the reality of the people there. So I, I think it's really helpful to not look at every word of the text as saying, I should live my life by these words. It's simply describing certain situations. Yeah, I mean, there are descriptions of narratives in the Old Testament that I would say exactly like that, that, that this is a description of what happens, but it's not what Scripture is teaching for us to mirror in our lives. So, I mean, a great example is is the book of Judges. Uh, yes. I'm actually horrified how much spend time we spend in Sunday school on the book of Judges because the book of Judges, I think, largely is a negative example. It very it, much it's, is. It's what happens when uh, when people don't follow God. So there's you know like five different times in the text, including the last line of the the book, says, "In that time, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes." Right, and that's the sort of stuff that happens. So you have Jephthah sacrificing his daughter, and you have all sorts of negative things. Now, yes, God is working through that and working through His people and bringing good out of that. But none of that is like sanctioned. Like this is the definition of how Christians should be living. So there's so much in the Old Testament narrative, and actually even some in the New Testament narrative, where there are it's not described as here's the ideal that you should live up to. But here's the problems that our society finds itself in and how we as Christians, as believers, try to chart a way through that. So uh, I agree with you that this, the, the Scripture is inerrant, but the, if you want to be really careful how to articulate that, that Scripture is inerrant in what it teaches, right, in what, it's, in what it affirms, in what it says, and, you know, you should do this too. But there's a lot that's in the narratives that's, again, talking about stuff that it, it doesn't sanction in any shape, way, or form. Okay. It, it, the point was this is one of those deals where he's thinking we can pick and choose. And, and, and I'm aware of some things that I don't follow. But my point was just because I might not think it's bad, I don't want to be my God. I need a God that says no to me. So uh, I need to go by what the text says. I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, like women pastors, I might not think that's a big deal, but it's in there. And I think we get in a real dangerous spot where we, it's a slippery slope. Well, I believe that, but I don't believe that. Now, I've never been to a church where women covered their heads. Um, there are churches like that, but, but you know, right. so we don't do that. Now, I kind of get that one because that would keep the guys from gawking. Well, probably not, right? Yeah, yeah. Good I wouldn't do it for me. I don't know. <laughs> but I think you bring up a good point, George, and it's a really important one, is that there, I think there's a really important distinction to say that the biblical text is authoritative, which I agree with, and it's inspired and inerrant, which I agree with. But it's another thing to say that a given interpretation 
of the biblical text is authoritative. So uh, in the example of homosexuality or the example of women covering their heads or all of these different examples, you could read five or six or seven different scholars who would have different interpretations of what that passage is supposed to mean, and they would all claim that their interpretation is scripturally based. But the reality is, is when these interpretations are conflicting, they can't all be authoritative. There, there really is one only, only one authoritative message within the scripture itself. And the question is, is how do you know that your interpretation is actually in alignment with the scriptures? And that's the process of what's called exposition or ex- exegesis to try to interpret the text. And the women covering their heads is a great example of that in the sense that if you went back into that time and into that culture in the Corinthian church, you would see that, that oftentimes women were had certain hairstyles that were consistent with prostitutes or consistent with believing that they somehow had transcended the female race and they are now part of the angelic community. And it was very distracting in the community itself. So Paul's not writing to us in that moment a, a certain kind of command for all time women cover their heads. He's writing to the Corinthian church at this time and saying, women, you are completely disrupting the church service right now, so cover your heads. It, it would be the same kind of idea that if you and I and Jim all decided to wear swimsuits to church, uh, Paul would say, you can, but you're terribly disruptive to the surface, so put on some clothes instead of coming in swimsuits. And so it's there, there's a lot of um, getting into the text about what the text is trying to say is a really tricky process, but it's why there's often such division about this. I'm not sure your analogy really works that <laughs> well. I can see that service I'm being trying. very poorly attended. Yeah, yeah, could, there might <laughs> I, only be three I, of us. I can imagine, you know, the worshipfulness of the community being... <laughs> no, actually, that'd be horrible. So yeah. <laughs> let's not do that. So I don't know if that helps at all, but I, I think that is really where we get. If you walk into one church and they look at one passage of Scripture, they'll say it means this. But there's plenty of people who look at that Timothy passage of women not teaching and say, but you need to understand the circumstances. It's not a, a prohibition for all time. It's, it's a temporary one. And other people will say, this is a prohibition for all time. How do you know who's right? Because both of them are biblical scholars saying it. And that's why it's such a tricky process to get into the word. It'll be helpful after I listen to it about five times. And uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Let's keep the questions coming. 877-933-2484. Guy Talks underway. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. Guide Talk's underway, and we're moving fast and furious. Let us know if you have questions, 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484. Let's, uh, let's jump into um, the flesh. After we become new creations in Christ, we still deal with our flesh, right? What authority, what what place does it have in our new life in Christ? Um, looking at Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So where does the flesh come in, and how, why do we still struggle with it so much? You guys are pointing at each other. Somebody talk. <laughs> well, I can say maybe a, like a little starter comment, and then you can get to the main course, Jim. But I, you know, there's, uh, I take some cues from some of the passages in Romans 6, 7, 8, where Paul talks about 
that in his inmost being he delights in the law of God, that there is some part of his, his, his deepest substance that really resonates and echoes with the realities of the kingdom. But then he goes to try to do what it is that his heart wants him to do. And he says, but there is a power at work in my flesh or something that is in me, but somehow outside of me that is waging war. And so I think what Paul is attempting to articulate, and, and again, Jim, I'd love some follow-up on, on some of this too, is the idea that um, sin is something that is not inherent to us, but it is woven within us. And uh, in this sort of corruptible body in which we live, having been sown perishable, we need a new body to be raised imperishable that is not subject to the corrupting influence of sin. And and I think you don't just get to do away with it until the final raising uh, into imperishability uh, when you go to the other side. Yeah, I mean, the the language of flesh kind of invokes this spirit-flesh dichotomy, and, and that that's a piece of what is sometimes called when we look in biblical studies, the two ways theme, yep. right? So there's a path leading to life and there's a path leading to death. And so the path following God's spirit is leading to life and the path leading, you know, following the flesh is, is, uh, takes us away from that. And so you mentioned uh, Romans 7. So uh, Paul is just, you know, this just anguished, you know, says the things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing, oh, wretched man that I am. And so that is a, a description of a person who's living in the flesh. And there's this sin nature. Um, scripture speaks about sins. So like the individual sins that we do, but there it also speaks about ha-harmartia, the sin power that lives in us. So to the degree that we fuel our sins, that we live in our sin nature, we have no chance of following. And to the degree we allow uh, the Holy Spirit to rewrite our spiritual DNA, to to the degree we follow what Christ is doing, that, that's the only way that we have, the ch- have a chance to be on the right path. So the question, I mean, you could, uh, some, sometimes simplifying these things is, a little misleading, but without being too misleading, I think you can say to the degree that we fuel our sin nature, we're, we're of course on the wrong path and, and we have no chance of getting on the right path. And to the degree that we allow the Holy Spirit to work within us and, you know, to uh, rewrite our spiritual DNA, then, then, then we're okay. Right. So yeah, that the fleshliness has to do with that 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 notion of allowing the sin power to rage in our life or not. And I, and I appreciate they're using sin power because I would have in growing up, I would have thought sin was simply an action that I did that was disconnected or inconsistent with what God wanted me to do. So sin was only, it was reduced down to just the, simply the action. But what you're describing, and I would love to crawl back into that first century worldview that Paul was referencing to say, but hang on, there's actually a dynamic, ongoing, real, pervasive power at work that is seeking to enslave, that is seeking to destroy, that is seeking to call us away from life in the spirit. And I think that better describes the fight that we have so often in, in life, whether it, it these these sort of almost unexplainable temptations and draws towards. I mean, there really is a power of life and a power of death that is happening all day long around us. And I think to the extent we're blinded to that is the extent that we can become subject to it and hardly even know it as opposed to just, well, I don't want to sin today, meaning I don't want to say a cross word or I don't want to lie or I don't want to look at a woman in the wrong way or something like that. I think when we really underestimate the power of sin that is all around us seeking to enslave, we're, we're really missing the point. But 
But the promise is that there's an active risen Lord and Savior by his spirit in whom we live and move and have our being that can call us to life at the same time all day long. And he's broken the power of sin and death. And now that calls us into a reason for relationship with Jesus as opposed to, well, I believe that he died. I get into heaven. We're talking about a dynamic ongoing relationship all day long that I begin to realize I need because of the power of sin. Yeah, and it, and it has everything to do also with this notion of works. I mean, does Christianity require me to do something? Right. Absolutely it does. But is there anything that I can do that I can then stand before God in my flesh and say, I did this. Wasn't this amazing? You have to save me now, right? Clearly not, right? So there is this this notion that while Christianity requires something of us, you know, taking up our cross daily, right. you know, uh, following Jesus Christ, loving uh, Lord God with your heart, soul, and mind, your neighbors, yourself. All these things are things that we do, but that none of that is amounts to any us earning our salvation or accomplishing our salvation. And so when we try to accomplish salvation, we're working out of the flesh, Yeah. right? And if we're going to be saved, the only way we're going to be saved is, you know, we stand before, you know, God on judgment day. The only way we can be saved is not by anything that we've done. We can just say, I'm with him, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the only way it's going to happen. Well, and that's, I think, why Martin Luther wanted to chuck uh, the book of James out of the biblical text, because there was even maybe a misunderstanding about this faith and works idea. The idea if I if I have faith, meaning that I've leaned my life into Jesus, that I am counting on him all day long as sort of the posture of my soul. The natural outworking of that is going to be works. There's going to be evidence of that leaning into in my life that just begins to naturally flourish in my life as I tap into that power. So our salvation is not by works, but because of the salvation we experience, the, the natural works begin to come from that place. And, and I, so I think it's interesting the misunderstanding we have about a works-based salvation. We're not talking about that, but we are talking about salvation does evidence itself in just natural ways increasingly as we deal with the redemptive power of God. Yeah, I mean, Luther is trying to distance himself from a understanding that's, that uh, was more works-based. And, and so you understand his reticence to that. Right. But I think, actually, I'm a little bit worried that we've gone too far in the Agreed. opposite way in our context where we just have this cheap sort of grace. Like, I, hey, I believed, I said my magic prayer, and now I'm in, and now it doesn't matter what I do. Right. No, it, it absolutely matters what we do. And because every single choice that we make uh, on a daily basis takes us toward God or takes us away from God. And, you know, we're either living in the flesh or we're living in the spirit. And we need to take it really seriously and, and acknowledge that those sorts of actions are meaningful in spiritual ways. And this is why Jesus said, follow me at the end of the day, right? He didn't say, I've come to make sure that you get into heaven when you die and to take sort of the angry shot from the father on your behalf. Now, all of, we can talk about all of those things, but what he specifically yeah. said is follow me, which is, means live life in my presence all day long for I have the redemptive power available to you all day long. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the, beauty, the beauty of that is it also rewires one of the other really serious mistakes that we make in the contemporary church, that we sort of think that we believe in God and therefore the reward of believing in God is heaven. Right. No. <laughs> the reward is God, mm. right? The reward is relationship with the being that we're created to be in relationship with. Right. And this idea that we're given a reward or even worse, we're just what we're given is the avoidance of hell or right. something like right. that. That that's a com, that's a complete misunderstanding of what the gospel message is. That's wanting something from God, but not wanting God himself. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll, I'll be really good with, you know, whatever you're going to throw my way in terms of earthly blessings. And of course, you know, golden streets and pearly gates and <laughs> things like that. But don't ask too much of me in any sort of relational way. <laughs> No, it's it's it, it's it's understanding that the whole religion thing is transactional, mm-hmm. and it's not. All right? Yeah. Okay. 
I'm going to get shot here, but let me ask this. Would anybody <laughs> become a Christian if it wasn't, and let me, it's a long question, if it wasn't for the avoidance of hell in that I don't think we can get spiritually healthy enough to want God for God, we can want to have a relationship with him so we don't have our con- our consequences. Can you comment May- on that? Maybe, but here's here's the deal. A person uh, saying yes to God or praying some sinner's prayer just because they're afraid of, of mm-hmm. hell, I call it fire insurance. If, if all salvation is fire insurance, I'm not convinced that's salvation. So I don't think that everybody on day one when they enter in the Christian faith, they have to have all their doctrine figured out. But anybody who tr- seeks God merely as an avoidance of hell is not seeking God. Agreed. They're seeking themselves and their own comfortability. So what we have to do is, and again, some people maybe come into the faith and they misunderstand things. That's fine. Work, you know, work toward the right, the way, the right way of thinking about this. So, uh, the crucial thing is what Christian salvation is: is desiring God for His own sake, not as a means to an end that we like. Yeah. yeah, but I don't think you can get to that until you realize how bad you are, and a person who's that bad could never want God, in my opinion, for His sake. It's, it's kind of a both and. Or maybe I'm not really saved and I'm in a lot more trouble than I thought. But I don't I can't remember going. Yeah, I want to know God because I want to know God. I wanted to know God for his help to get me out of my sinful state and eternal hell. That was me. Now, that changed over time. But at the time. What, am I more trouble? No, than no, I no. This is great, George. I love it. Some people show up as mercenaries quite often. Give me, help me, give me, help me when it comes to God. Help me out here. And no, Peter. no, I mean, I think so. I bet, you know, I, I keep thinking about, so why did these initial fishermen, these failed fishermen and tax collectors and people, why did they say yes to following Jesus? Because I don't find in the biblical account that he's like, you know, I know you guys are afraid of hell and I know you're awful people. Like, what? why did they say yes to this guy? And and I think, I don't know for sure, but it seems to me the reason why they said yes is they had a distinct lack of hope in any sort of reality that was possible for them in this life, that they were enslaved, that they were burdened, that their soul was not at rest, all of that. I think they said yes because they saw a power available in this God-made flesh, and, and in that they found hope. So I don't know that they were saying yes because of trying to avoid hell. And I, I had a student once say, and it, it haunts me in a beautiful way to this day, he said, you know, I said yes not because I was persuaded by Jesus, I said yes because I was persuaded to get out of hell. And I don't think he ever made that transition to what it means to be persuaded by Jesus. And I think those early fishermen and those early people that were followers of Jesus, they were persuaded by Jesus. And and I sometimes wonder, Jim, uh, to your point that you said earlier, how well do we articulate a beautiful vision of who Jesus is and, and the possibility and reality that might, that people would say, I'm saying yes to Jesus specifically, not to, to get something out of this, not to make sure I get out of hell, but I'm specifically saying yes, because I think a lot of people understandably never make that shift. I can speak for me. I've been a Christian since I was six. I think I finally started loving Jesus in my 30s. And, uh, and, and I think there's some things to wonder about relative to that. Okay. To, to your point, I, I think that relationship with Jesus Christ does get us out of all the sorts of hells that we create for ourselves and addictions and bondage to things. And so there are many times we're just saying, I'm lost and, and Jesus is a path out of this and, that, and, and that's great and that's fine. But anybody who's trusting in Jesus only to the degree that they can get, you know, punch their ticket out of hell right. isn't actually trusting in Jesus. It, it kind of ties in with what you said earlier about we got to do a piece, right? 
Now we have to go to break here in 40 seconds, so oh. we can pick this up on the other side of the break. <laughs> You're listening to Guy Talk, and boy, lots of questions coming in, so we got to talk faster. Let us know what they are, 877-933-2484. Dr. Peter Kaffner, Dr. Jim Bilby, George Fraser, and myself are the roundtable today. We'll be right back. Guy Talk, thanks for your questions. They're coming in fast and furious. 877-933-2484. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Dr. Jim Bilby, George Fraser. So, gentlemen, uh, obviously we need to be extremely careful in how we validate our experiences, right? Yes. So, what about when you hear a story of someone who says, I had a near-death experience, and they say, all right, so I got to heaven, and I saw Moses, and he was shorter than I thought he'd be, but here I'm now back, and wow, was that cool. Is there a biblical basis for these near-death experiences? Well, I, I would say my free association response is skepticism. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, that's the first word that comes to mind. I, I don't, uh, I mean, clear, Paul does reference the idea of being caught up in the third heaven, which was a, a reference point of finding themselves in the presence of, of God. And in heaven, in the biblical text, is not some floating barge of gold just past the Andromeda galaxy that you sort of get beamed up to. It's simply the place where God dwells. Yeah. And that's, that's around us in our next breath. But the idea that somebody has a near-death experience claims to have, as you just referenced, saw Moses in these ways, or uh, I, yeah, you know, it Paul, seems like they've all been debunked. Uh, Peter, doesn't that passage nowhere state that the man had died or had come close to death? And that's just it, right? Is, yeah. is, so there's you no know, basis th- for it. That's exactly right. It, he's clearly still alive and suddenly caught up in the heavens. So there's yeah. plenty of those kind of exchanges, but the idea of dying and coming... I mean, Lazarus, we didn't get an account of what Lazarus experienced when he was in the tomb for three days. We, that certainly would have been helpful yeah, at been. that point to know. Yeah. No, I mean, so... A lot of, like a lot, and with a lot of these things, I end up saying, well, far be it for me to say that God couldn't give somebody a near-death experience if he thought it was really important or something like that. But uh, so in other words, I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything that rules it out that something like that absolutely couldn't be the case. But uh, honestly, I have no reason to think that this one is reliable, is authentic, is real. Um, there, you know, you know, maybe healings is another good example like that. Uh, I, if God wants to heal somebody, uh, I'm not going to be the one to say that, no, God, you can't do that anymore. Um, but a lot of the accounts of faith healings that I, I hear, uh, I tend to be a little skeptical about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, perhaps it's, it's a similar sort of thing. I appreciate uh, that. Uh, Another question that came in from a listener. What is your opinion on suicide in heaven? Hmm. What's it? Yeah, that comes wow. up often. Yeah, this is an enormously difficult one, this was a really um, difficult and one. in part because there is uh, some in some segments of church tradition have held that uh, suicide is functionally an, an unforgivable sin yeah. that um, that you are taking your life in a way you're playing God, mm-hmm. and by virtue of that, that you you cannot be saved. Um, now, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, I do actually think that there's a a truth to uh, unjustified killing being sin, right? And suicide, I think, probably would be an example of unjustified killing. Um, And so it's sinful, but uh, 
I actually think that a person who's in that situation, that God is absolutely weeping that, that life has been such that this person felt like they had absolutely no hope. And I don't see anything in Scripture that suggests that suicide is this rises to the level of the un, unforgivable sin. Um, and, uh, you know, what if there is an unforgivable sin, what it is is, is finally saying no to God. Right. And what this person is doing, it seems, is finally saying no to life and hoping that there's some, there's some hope in, that's not in this life, that's in the afterlife, that's not in this life. And so that to me doesn't, it, I don't think that's, uh, so I, I think it, the idea that suicide means you can't be saved is absolutely incorrect. Yeah, I mean, it's such a classic example of something that the scripture is relatively silent about, and we have to do our best to sort of interpret from some different lenses that way. I, I think about the case of the the fairly large, prominent pastor who killed himself maybe about six months ago out of California, and some of the social media response and then the obituary that his wife provided was that he's finally free from the mental illness and from the drug addictions that he has, and he's in the arms of Jesus. And And I can sympathize with that point of view, but boy, if you take that point of view too far— then wouldn't it be better to end if you're if you're guaranteed to be in the arms of Jesus and finally at peace? Wouldn't anyone with mental illness and drug addiction want to then make that step in that way? Uh, and on the flip side, if everybody ends up in hell that kills themselves, well, I, I, there's no scriptural evidence for that too. So this is one of those things. I don't think you can land really hard on one side or the other. It's such a just a very difficult traumatic issue. Mm-hmm. There's a listener that said. Uh, can you give me an example of a sinner's prayer? I've been coming alongside a coworker for two to three years, got him a Bible and explained the gospel to him. It's been a gradual process, but trying to give an example of, of how we can say, would you like to pray to receive Christ? How would anyone go about that? You're pointing at me, Jim. See, see I'm losing this pointing game today. Oh, dear. Uh, you know... Maybe it's not the right tact, and, and I absolutely believe in that giving. There, there's a step of giving your life over, but consistent with what we talked about a little bit earlier, I'm a little bit more of the mindset these days that in the evangelism process, I'm inviting people to say yes to following Jesus. Like, just to, just take, give it a shot. Say yes to Jesus and, and follow him, and uh, I trust that God will then begin to be active in their lives in ways that will continue to be redemptive. Um, I think that's the yes we're looking for. Now, that's a little different than the tradition you're talking about, which is more of the sinner's prayer and the idea that I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to hell. Please forgive me my sins so that we can be rightly ordered again. There's a lot of different Christian traditions in history that have a lot of different versions of that idea. And infant baptism is another version of that idea. To, to die in an unbaptized state means you're going to hell. To die without saying the sinner's prayer means you're going to hell. There's a lot of versions of that. And I think it's worth talking about, Jim. I'd be curious your perspective. But I, I've taken the mindset more so lately, trying to stay consistent with the scriptures, that Jesus' invitation constantly was, follow me, which simply meant, um, I am buying your life with a price right now. And and your life is mine. I am king of a kingdom. You're saying yes to me. Bend your knee and walk that way. I, that gets back to the being persuaded by Jesus as opposed to I'm scared to go to hell. And I, I'm not saying we shouldn't say those things. I'm mm-hmm. not at all saying, but I think there's more to evangelism than just making sure that a prayer is being prayed. So I mean, I think, think of it as we're saying yes to Jesus. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, some people say just saying yes to Jesus as Savior is enough. That's, again, the fire, more of the fire insurance sort right. of language. To say yes to Jesus is to acknowledge who he is in your life, and that is yes, Savior, but also Lord. Right. So there is, you, you, to, to acknowledge Jesus as Savior, you're saying, I can't save myself which means I, you're acknowledging that you're sinful. So the, the notion of acknowledging your sin in this prayer is entirely appropriate. Mm-hmm. 
But then also crucial is this idea of, like Peter said, of following Christ. And so the the language that's in the tradition that I, I actually really like is this idea of taking up your cross and following Jesus, right? You, you can't save yourself, and you so you have to acknowledge that, and you have to acknowledge that you are in need of a Savior, but then this is a journey that you are on. This is not a magic word that you say that now punches your ticket. This is now, you're now, I'm with Jesus, and I'm going to daily try to live like him. And so the question of what would Jesus do is, I think, a crucial one for Christians. How do we live our lives in the way Christ would desire us to live? Yeah, and I think uh, there's a quote from A.W. Tozer, so a giant in the faith, right, when uh, when things were getting reduced down to only saying a sinner's prayer. And he said this, uh, he said, that is feeling that there's a notable heresy that has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles, the widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior, but postpone obedience to him as Lord. And Dallas Willard goes on to then say it can kind of create the impression that we're vampire Christians. We just, we only want a little bit of blood uh, in order to save, but there's not this idea that we're saying yes entirely to a king of a kingdom. And that was A.W. Tozer saying these things, who obviously, you know, <laughs> pretty profound impact in the faith at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I like the word allegiance. Yeah, that's a great that's word. A great, that's a great You word. like that word? Did yeah, I get actually, that from you? Yeah, you did, in fact. <laughs> okay, well, then, then you know, so, there you go. I have a lot of people in the studio. And, there's know. a great, there's actually a great relatively new book called Faith is Allegiance by okay. a New Testament mm-hmm. scholar named Matthew Bates that he articulates this, uh, that really the best way to understand the word, pistis, faith, mm-hmm. Uh, is this concept of allegiance, not just like blind trust or a leap in the dark, but that we are declaring our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that means daily we are his ally and that we seek to do things for the kingdom of God. You know, when Kierkegaard said faith was just nothing but a leap in the dark, when does mm. it, when has it ever occurred to you when you're in your basement and the lights are completely <laughs> out or someone's basement that you don't know that your, your impulse is to leap you know, don't you put your hands out and and kind of gingerly kind of walk around hoping mm. that you don't break your face open? Gosh, and I, exactly but I, right. <laughs> you're right. And I think that's the heart of that word, believe in, so far as I understand it. It's the idea of a full surrender into and to leap in the dark like that. You're you're surrendering. You're, you're putting it all in at that point. And, and if, uh, Jesus is not there to greet you on the other side. That was a bad mistake, but he always is. Yeah. Rebecca, make a note that I quoted Kierkegaard today. <laughs> Noted, sir. Thank you so much. Okay, let's move on. Here's another question. It seems... Uh, like climate change has taken God out of the picture as far as controlling weather. This idea can have far-reaching impact on how our world, how our whole country makes financial decisions. Your thoughts on this? You're, oh. getting, you're getting all the, the pointing I, fingers right I, now, Jim. I, 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 lost, I lost the pointing <laughs> battle on that one. You definitely lost the pointing game on this one, Jim. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So there's so much to say here, and uh, I fear that maybe what I'm going to say is going to make some people unhappy, but... Let's go back to Genesis. Uh, We were given dominion over creation. Some people take that as like, oh, okay, so I can do whatever I want with it. Well, no, the term dominion is like we have dominion over creation. Humans have dominion over creation. Like I have dominion over my kids, meaning I'm supposed to care for and help uh, my kids to flourish. So um, if we are doing something, and, you know, this isn't the time or place to get into the details on the science. If we're doing something that is harming the planet, we are... Um, going against what God calls us, explicitly calls us to do. So I think it comes down to a really important question. Do we think that we're doing things to harm the planet? And if so, stop it and don't worry about, you know, the bottom line profit because that's not what, 
we're, that's not what we should be all about. If you don't think that we're doing anything to harm the planet, then okay, yeah, go go for it. And I'll I'll, I'll just I'll leave it I'll leave it sort of at that. I, I tend to think that it seems plausible that we are doing some things to harm the planet, mm-hmm. and so I'd want to be really careful about um, harming this thing that God called good. Mm-hmm. Right. That being said, that doesn't require I go to this crazy environmental perspective where I think that the you know, South African tree slug is equal with humanity in terms of God's plans. I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, humans are special in God's creation. That's undeniable. Um, but one of the reasons we're special and one of the tax, tasks we're giving because, given because we're special is this idea of caring for uh, his creation, li- literally imaging uh, God to creation. Yeah, I think we can safely say that human beings have an impact of some kind, right? And I, and I grew up in sort of the ozone layer era where there was the chlorofluorocarbons or whatever they were called at that time. And those are interesting times and they make me wonder what impact that we have. But regardless of the impact going on, I think what we can safely say is that there are brothers and sisters around the world that don't have the wealth or the technological means to deal with whatever's happening with the weather, whether it's man-induced or not. But, uh, but wealthy countries can handle wild weather swings much better than impoverished countries can. And I think there is a responsibility to help people. Again, I, I don't know about the science of all of it, but regardless of what's going on, that doesn't change the responsibility for those that can't deal with whatever is going on. And, uh, and there needs to be help given in that answer. Mm-hmm. All right, here's another question that's keeping in an earlier question we were talking about uh, women in the church, uh, and they were disruptive because they were being too uh, noisy. Peter, mm-hmm. was that kind of something you had? Yeah, you know, the, yeah, exactly. Mentioned? But then the the, uh, the listener said, um, so when there are issues that just cannot be concluded as to whether they are authoritative or just the culture, wouldn't it be wise to err on the side of how Jesus treated women? He elevated them. Well, I, I certainly think that's a safe conclusion. I mean, there's yeah. plenty of examples of that. I, I think about the passages when he's teaching about uh, adultery in the book of Mark and Luke, and uh, it's the first time that we see concessions made that the woman could actually be a victim of adultery, which in that culture at that time, only the male could be a victim of, uh, of adultery. And Jesus changed the rules right there on the spot mm-hmm. and saying, hang on just a minute, we are not seeing the situation rightly. And there's all sorts of subtleties that Jesus is doing in those moments in his treatment of women, uh, including the woman who was chucked into his midst uh, in John chapter 9 in, in terms of uh, she should have been stoned by law and Jesus treated her in a very different kind of way. So there's a lot. Of, it's a wonderful conversation to get into that has a lot of evidence to it. Mm-hmm. Let me take a little break. Guy Talk's underway. We've got one more segment. Let us know if you have a question, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Guitar work. You know who that is, Jim? I do not. Leo Kotke. Oof. I've never even heard of him. Leo who? Leo Kotke. Uh, I'm not very well versed in the no, music. That's all right. That's all right. Why do you think uh, Christians uh, are so inclined to want to uh, buy into verses that make them feel like they're going to instantly lose their salvation? Like, for example, you know, the whole verse of, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out. And that's all they know about the verse. And they don't even know the context of the verse because they haven't studied it. But they they seem to be really interested in 
clinging to that verse and saying, well, this, this is what could happen. But they don't, even, they don't even study the verse. Um, my sense is that Christians use that verse uh, really aggressively of other people and less so of themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> so that's the problem point. with you is yeah. that you, you are, are being lukewarm. lukewarm. Yeah. Um, and Jesus you know, is going to spit you yeah. out. <laughs> you are the Church of Laodicea. I, clearly, that's not my problem, yeah. right? So I, I think we do perhaps, uh, we're very quick to judge other people and see, identify other people's problems as being, well, clearly they're being lukewarm. They're not, you know, sure. as sold out as, as they should be. I, I'm not entirely convinced that we uh, internalize that. Um, and I'm not saying I think it would be a good idea if we did, but, uh, but it, my sense is that we tend to use that more uh, focusing on another yeah, and I, and I think it's a really easy kind of a default mechanism to try to parent or to lead or to uh, teach from a place of uh, trying to help people manage their behavior through fear of the consequences. And it's so common in school. I know that I parent way too often from a place of my kids need to be afraid of the consequences, so they should do this, as opposed to being persuaded by the beauty and wonder and the possibility of what is consistent within God's kingdom. And so I think we so often lean on those kind of verses because we might be afraid of what would happen, as opposed to saying, hang on, there's a beautiful vision of the kingdom to say yes to uh, that, that is compelling, and I might want to give my heart towards it. I don't know too many people living a discipleship of fear that end up in a place of authentic love of the kingdom. And, uh, and especially in that verse in First John where it says, perfect love casts out fear. It's pretty tough to know who God is if you're walking around afraid all the time. Mm-hmm. If you're relying on yourself, that is what you deserve. And when I think people, I know for me in my walk, when I get afraid, I'm taking it all back and not relying on God's strength and his grace. Yeah. And so if you focus on yourself and your own efforts, you should be afraid and you are going to be afraid. Because living, uh, uh, taking the the language we were talking about earlier in in, in the program, that, that that's relying on our works, on our flesh, right. on our accomplishment, rather than acknowledging that all of this happens through grace. Right. Have we all used verses out of context? I mean, even worse, we're now talking about Revelations three about um, you know being lukewarm. You know, Jesus is talking about the Church of Laodicea, basically saying there's no true believer there. But I'll stand at the door and knock. If there's a true believer, I'll come in. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like, do we often hijack that verse the, and say, you know, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking right now? Yeah, I, you know, so I actually, I, I used to do, you know, some speaking in churches and stuff. One of the talks I used to do is uh, 10 things that sound heretical but really aren't, right? And one of those things were stop memorizing Scripture. <laughs> or... If you do memorize scripture, don't memorize verses, memorize chapters. Yeah, okay. Because so often what we do is we zoom in on a particular verse, and then we kind of then take that verse and abstract it out from the context of Paul's argument or John's argument or wherever it is, and then we, 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 we rely on that concept, again, divorced from the context. And so, so often... That's the way we, we, we treat things. We memorize little chunks or little ideas, and then once they're separated from the text, then we can do all sorts of stuff with them, and, and we often uh, do take them out of context at that point. So the trick, I think, as Christians is to, yes, it's great to memorize that verse, you know, and, and behold, I stand at the door and knock. That, that's a great verse that we all remember from Sunday school, right? But then go back and read that and make sure that our current thinking of that is fitting with the context and, you know, there's great resources out there uh, 
My my favorite is the IVP background Bible ta- yeah. commentary by Craig Keener. That doesn't. It's not a commentary. It doesn't tell you what how to read passages. It just gives you the what's going on behind the context. How do we understand this? You know, kind of the whole background here, and that then helps us. Uh, read in context much better. Yeah, I think to your point, Jim, I love that idea of memorizing chunks of Scripture because in the time of Jesus, young Jewish boys and young Jewish girls would have been encouraged to memorize the entire first five books of the Bible, if not more than that, almost the entire, what we would consider to be the Old Testament. They would memorize these wide swaths. And, and I often in class will take that very famous passage, John three sixteen, that probably many people know, and ask the students, so do you know what John three fourteen says? And to a student, they don't know what it says about this idea of just as the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will have to be raised. And we then get into, so what was Jesus's self-understanding as he was walking to the cross? And why did he then tie what he was doing into the serpents in the wilderness? And when did the serpent first show up in the text? And how often? And why did Moses' staff turn into a serpent? And all of these things. And you start seeing this beautiful patterns throughout Scripture that you miss if you just rip one verse out and, uh, and take it out of context like that. I mean, is it okay to use an application like that for a personal, I mean, if you're, if you're sharing your faith? I mean, many, many people have done that, including me. Yeah, well, me too. Yeah, uh, so okay, I, good. I think it's okay to do it, but so there's, I just think we need to be really clear on what is an application of a passage and what is the meaning of the passage. When we're talking about meaning, we need to get into what is the context and how do we understand yep. this in light of what the original readers would have understood the author, the biblical author, the divine author to be saying in this passage. Now, we can take that passage in all sorts of ways and apply this in our days and, oh, I should be thinking this way or I should do this. That's all great, right? And, and, and the Holy Spirit can help us do that in effective ways. But if we're talking about what does a passage mean, I do think we need to get into those yeah. Uh, background, those context questions. Well, and it's part of why I'm far more scared to teach the scriptures in churches at the age of 48 than I was maybe in my 20s when I assumed I had all of these verses just sort of knocked down, wrapped up. But to your point, I think the the best um, advice I was given by a pastoral supervisor of mine, he said, you know, when I sit down with a biblical passage and think, what am I going to teach from this? He grabs five of those kind of commentaries that you just referenced from a variety of faith traditions and reads all of the background, all of the original language, all the context, tries to rewind himself back into the time in which this book was written, uh, understand the author, all of what's there to really get into the context. And you, if you're going to preach on a given verse, you pretty much need to read all of the chapters surrounding that verse to get a real yeah. handle on what's there, plus all the background. And it's part of what we talked about earlier. It's why it's so hard sometimes when you see conflicting interpretations of the text, how do you know what is authoritative in that, much less what you would teach about it? Okay, so here's the objection to what we're saying here. So I, mean, I think this is, this is true, what we're saying. The objection is you're making the gospel so difficult. Right. You you're making the, the Bible so difficult. Well, actually, there's one sense in which a lot of the questions that arise from the gospel and arise in Scripture are incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. You need to engage that. But that doesn't mean there's not an equally important sense in which the gospel is very simple, and even the Bible is very simple. Here's how simple the Bible can be. Genesis 1 and 2, God created it, was good. Genesis 3, we messed it up. Yep. Genesis 4, to the end of the New Testament, God's fixing what we messed up. So we still can fall back on these simple, clear ideas, but... Let's not forget that when we engage difficult questions and when we come to Scripture with that, we should expect to have to do a little bit of work and do a little digging and go into the background and do the exegetical things that uh, are more likely to lead us to the meaning rather than what we want the meaning to be. Yeah. 
All right. A listener jumped in and said, you know, the meaning of the word salvation, the etymology is simply put sav, yes. Latin for help. It's to an heal. ongoing thing. It's um, an ever-present help. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the quotes working? of the ancient theologians too, Jim, where, you know, they, they might not say I'm saved. They would say I've been saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. The idea of this ongoing rescuing and healing process that is embedded in the word salvation uh, that happens in reference to when, as we're following Jesus, that redemptive power is at work in our life. Yeah. And the help that salvation is, it's not just this one-time little thing that punches a ticket. It is, again, this notion of I am being saved. I am learning daily how to follow Jesus Christ and finding joy in that process, not just somewhere, you know, third star left, then on till morning in the future, right? It's it's the here and now and the victory over sin in my life. Yeah. It's a good reminder, too, that when you come to faith in Christ and receive salvation, it's a present gift. It's not something that's off in your future. It's something that's a current reality. Yeah, and that's, boy, that passage in Philippians where then it says, so now start working out your salvation uh, in fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. And this idea of God redemptively breaking us from the ongoing power of sin in our lives to bring that wholeness wholeness and healing, at least in part on this side, that we will know in full on on the side to come. George, don't you feel like your IQ has gone up at least five points? In this hour? Well, I feel like... I mean, like it'll it go needs, down when you leave. It needs to, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Really it'll instantly stuff. go down when you leave the studio, but, I mean, these are smart guys. It's, it's mm. fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I learn a lot. Thank you so much for coming in. Dr. Yeah. Peter Kapsner, Dr. Jim Bilby, and George Fraser have been my guest. George is the co-host of Real Recovery, which airs Sundays at 5 and uh, Saturdays at 3 Central Standard Time. That wraps up this hour. Thank you for listening and all the great questions that came in. My friend Jeff Dorn is coming in hour two. Don't budge. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.